Hello, everyone. Thank you all for coming to tonight's platform performance with Stephen Beresford, the author of The Last of the Housemans. I'm uh, Matt Wolf, the London theater critic for the International Herald Tribune. Stephen, thank you for coming. You're welcome. A first-time playwright in this <clears throat> theater with this cast yeah. is pretty astonishing by anyone's reckoning. Just give us some sense of how that happened. Yes. Um, it is astonishing. It astonished me. But it, it, was, um, it was a bit like winning a competition. Not that I've ever won a competition, but I imagine it's like... Because, I mean, it really happened so simply. Um, I wrote it. <laughs> I gave it in. And Nick Heitner rang me and said, we'd like to do your play. What do you think about Julie Waters? That was sort of how... I mean... <laughs> So any struggling playwrights out there, you know, it's to take my advice and just send it in. Um, it was pretty, um, a, a pretty simple process, really. Uh, I, well, I, I, um, I met with Bash, uh, Sebastian Bourne, who is the literary manager here, and um, he uh, read the play. He'd read the play. Um, it was very long when he arrived. It's still quite long, but it was very, very long when, when he got it. And um, he says to me, it sat on his printer and groaning with the weight of 200 pages. And uh, he thought, oh, God, I've got to read that bloody play. But he did read it, and then he liked it. And um, there, was a, there was a joke on the first page, so he felt sort of like he could go forward. And <clears throat> he read it, he called me in, and we had a chat. Um, Bash's emails are quite short, so it said, I like your play. Coffee? Something like that. <laughs> so that was the birth of my playwriting career. Or I th didn't think it even I like your play. I think your play is good. Coffee. So we had a coffee, and then he commissioned a rewrite of the play. And then he said, now it must be cut. Uh, and it really did have to. I mean, there was like another play that had to be taken out of it. Um, which I think is quite common with first plays. You just sort of sit there and write and write and write. And also, I think, because first place... I mean, I started writing the play a long time ago, and then I put it to one side and I came back to it. So I think a common problem with that is that you start writing and you think, I can't send this to anyone. So you keep writing. So until you finally send it to someone, you end up with this huge tome. Whereas second place, you know, you get a commission and you think, gee, I've got to do that by July. So they tend to be quicker <laughs> and shorter. Um, but, yeah, so I wrote it. It was, it was commissioned. He commissioned a cut, a ruthless cut. Um, and then, um, and then, yeah, then, then Nick rang me and said, we'd, we'd like to do your play. I said, yes, <laughs> like you would, really. Uh, <clears throat> the whole thing sounds so extraordinarily charmed. Yes. Do, do you ever kind of step back and go, I, I, can't, I can't quite believe it? Yeah, maybe it isn't real. I mean, it's possible that all of this is a, like, a drunken illusion I'm having, and I'm going to wake up in the gutter on the South Bank and find I've lost a month. Um, <clears throat> Uh, well, yeah, I do, I do. It was very strange once that the, the experience of coming into the first day of rehearsals was absolutely extraordinary and, and terrible um, because I, it was my first play rehearsal experience and it was in the Littleton rehearsal room and I walked in and, of course, whenever you have a first day of rehearsals at the National Theatre, the, the, the room is filled with people. Everybody comes down to say hello to you. So there's thousands of people in the room. And this set has been recreated in the rehearsal room with a revolve. Only it's not obviously that set, but it's just a pile of junk. So it looked like the set of cats. <laughs> and it was sort of huge on this revolve tower. And then there were all these people there, and the actors, all of whom I admire enormously, and Howard, who I admire enormously, and Nick, and, and all these people. And I just wanted to... I just, all I wanted to do was say, this is, this is a terrible mistake. <laughs> uh, 
or just go, you lot do it, and I'll come back <laughs> on the first night. Um, then, things in, then rehearsals were wonderful, and, and I really enjoyed that. And then previews began. I'd enjoyed rehearsals so much that I had forgotten that previews were going to be awful until I walked in that door there and walked down, and Howard was sitting in the middle in his sort of, sort of royal area that he has uh, to watch the tech, and he looked a bit dark-faced. And I said, how are you? And he said, I hate previews, and so will you. <laughs> and he was right, I did. And I became a complete nervous wreck. It was absolute hell. I didn't enjoy a single second of it. Because you just get into a terrible state, and you sit in, I, we'd sit in that back row, all the sort of creatives, and, and all I did was watch the audience. And then I'd, you know, someone would laugh, and I'd think, oh, thank God. And then you'd see someone with their arms folded, like this. And then I'd watch them for two, uh, two and a quarter hours. <laughs> <laughs> and they'd, you know, shrug to their friend. And then, oh, and then go to the interval. And I think they're not going to come back. And then they'd come back. I think, this is worse. Why didn't you just go? <laughs> All you do really is watch one member of the public for two and a quarter hours every night, a different one. I could, I could, I could po point them out to you if I saw them on the Bakerloo line. I studied them so, so you know, closely. But then weird things happen when you watch the audience because you have a, they, they um, you know, I watched one couple who just sat like this, stony face, and I thought, this is hell. And then suddenly in the middle of one of Julie's speeches, the woman was crying and, and her, the husband passed for a tissue. And then they carried on like that. And I thought, well, that's fair enough because I watch TV going, or the theatre and going, that's funny. I don't really, I'm not that sort of person who rolls around. I'm a terrible audience member. So I sort of gave my, I got myself off the hook about that. Um, were you rewriting frantically during yeah, previews, or was it fairly yeah. fixed? It, in fact, there was an incident where I was there at Prompt Corner, and I was writing, and the phone rang, and it was Howard, and he said, meet me in the BFI bar. So I did. And he said, I've got you out of the building to, in order to tell you that you will be barred re-entry because you are a complete basket case. <laughs> and he gave me a large gin and tonic, which I drank, and then he said, go home. And that was the first time, because, of course, my background had been as an actor, I, I had forgotten that you didn't have to go there every night. So then I suddenly realized, oh, it's... I, and I thought, this is amazing. And I drank my gin and tonic, and I went home, and I watched The Great Antiques Hunt and something else about the coast of somewhere, Sheppey. And, I, you know, I had a pizza. And I thought, it's 20 past nine. And I lay on the couch, and I went to bed. You know, and the show report came up, and it said, you know, whatever it said. I thought, oh, this is all right. So things did improve after that. So it's a very long answer to your question. Um, mm. So yes, that's... Um, and then press night, which was the worst experience of my life. Um, yes, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, <clears throat> obviously, press night results in one inevitable thing, which are the reviews. Yes. Uh, you had been an actor, so you're, you've been reviewed. But it must be very different as the playwright, because you have yeah. given birth to the event as yeah. the playwright. Yeah. What was that like? Did you want to read them? Did you not want to read them? Did you have your mum read them to you? Yeah, no. Um, good God, no. All people. <laughs> uh, no, I, uh, I didn't read them. I haven't read them still to this day. Um, I won't read them. I'll read them when, the play, when this runs over, maybe. I, by then, I may just think, what's the point? Mm. I don't see any point in it. And I don't consider myself to be a person of a very strong character. So I'm surprised to find that, I, that this is true of me, but it is true. I don't um, think they have, there's good or bad, I don't think they have any benefit for me at this point in time. I just don't think there's anything for me in them, really, even, even or particularly the good ones, really. Mm -hmm. there are, so, but my agent is extraordinary, and she is a filter for these things. So she will say, she just gives me a weather report. 
instant she'll go, things are good. <laughs> and I, then I'm calmed. She has a becalming effect. And uh, <clears throat> some people, you know, people can't resist. Even if you say yes. to someone, I don't read reviews, they start to tell you about the reviews. And you say, yes, but please don't tell me about them. They say, no, no, I won't. I won't. I won't. The, but, the, but the Sunday Telegraphs <laughs> did say, no, but, and then you have to, then, you know. And um, so that sometimes happens, or people will text me and say, death to Billington. And then I think, well, what's he done? So in, in that particular instance, I then rang my agent and said, look, what's he said about me? And she said, brilliant. She was amazing. She said, there's four paragraphs, and three are positive, and one questions these two things, that, you know, and says X, Y, and Z about it. So well, that's fair enough. Um, <clears throat> I think that's the way, for me, anyway, to do it. I think you, you drive yourself insane if, if you do any, anything else. But interestingly, Stephen, although you'd never had a play done, and of course, first play, National Theatre Littleton, you had acted at the National Theatre. In fact, the last thing you acted in was on this very stage, which was a decade ago in a production of She Stoops to Conquer. Yeah. So you were returning to a space you knew and to a building you knew, yeah. but this time as a playwright. What was all that like? Did uh, it feel familiar? Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, it's odd. Uh, only when I come backstage or if I go into one of the actors' dressing rooms, I suddenly remember you know, I, the, the feeling of, of, um, of, of being here, uh, which I remember very fondly. Um, it's more fun to be here as the writer, I think. Um, I think. Actors have a lot of fun, don't get me wrong. But I, I, it's good to be here as the writer. I enjoy that. Um, but that's because I, I'm a writer. And I like, you know, I was, I'm now doing the right job. I'm not sure I was entirely doing the right job in, in those days. Um, oh, that's interesting. Tell, I mean, when you were at drama school, you went to RADA. Yeah. Were you thinking during your years at RADA, actually, I, I really should be writing. I shouldn't be up there on stage. Or, or did it take a while to realize that writing was your natural vocation? It, it took a while to realize. And I felt... I got into RADA, and my parents didn't have any money, and it cost them a lot of money to get me there and keep me there. Um, and I felt quite guilty, I think, that I thought that I was going to leave. If I left RADA and said, actually, I'm a writer, I mean, you know, they would have committed physical violence on my person, so <laughs> I, I didn't. And I was getting work, and, you know, I worked here, and I worked in good places, so, I, you know, there was lots of evidence to suggest that it was all, all all right. Just something was missing for me. I didn't feel, you know, I was doing quite the thing I, I was supposed to be doing. Um, it took a lot, quite a while for that to really sink in because having made quite a strong commitment to a career that's very difficult and very vocational, I think it's very easy to, um, to just stick in that groove and think, well, I can't deviate from that. So it, took, it was quite a painful, I remember, the experience of, of admitting to myself that I wasn't entirely happy um, as an actor was quite difficult, actually. But once I had admitted it, it started to, I started to realise that, that um, the things I loved about acting... Um, were about writing, <laughs> really. Mm. So, so many experiences I'd had of amazing uh, experiences I'd had on stage were about great writers. And I think that's, that's, that's sort of when I sort of realised that. It, it made a, had a big impact on me. Um, Was there a mm. moment, though, I mean, maybe during She Stoops to Conquer or, or immediately thereafter, where you thought, actually, I don't want to go to any more auditions. I don't mm. want to go up for this role. I don't really care. Yeah. I want Because it's a very different kind of life, too. Yeah. Acting, I assume, yeah. is much more sociable, yeah. writing much more <clears throat> solitary. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't really know. I always thought I was a very social person, and I was quite surprised I enjoyed being on my own and having that right, you know, the, the, the world of a writer. Um, but I do, and I think I'd always, always done it. I just didn't realise 
that I did it. For me, I always feel the best thing that going on. It's partly something that's connected with reading the reviews in, in this, which is I've always felt like the, the most wonderful thing that can happen to you, me in my life is to be walking around London with an idea in my head. It's the best feeling possible. And, and, that's the, and I think that was always happening. It's just that now it's, I, they're, they're, they're things, they're plays or they're you know, scripts or that, that, that's what I'm, I'm doing. Um, and there's something about reading reviews or, or interviews or anything like that, that 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 in a way destroys that magical experience. Because if I read reviews and it's... I don't know, I'm not being very articulate about this. It, it, I get it reflected back. Um, and the kind of the anonymity, the, the idea of being obscure and having this world of all of my own in my head is kind of, is kind of broken slightly by that. So mm. I'm quite superstitious about it, really. I try to avoid it as much as possible. Because I think the best... I have this feeling, anyway, that the best work you can do, you do in obscurity. Mm. The minute people say you're a writer and you're a writer of this, things can start to go a bit wrong. And you'd been writing a lot of stuff for movies, hadn't you? Yeah. And yeah. I remember coming to the press night of Last of the Housemans and thinking, you know, who is this guy? I don't know him. <laughs> I've never seen his work. But then looking in, in the uh, program and seeing all this film stuff. So how did you, how was that working in conjunction <laughs> with your theater? And also, how did you know that this was necessarily a theater piece, not a film piece? Uh, yes, a good question. I knew at once uh, that it was. And I, I think... Um, I'd been doing a lot of tele the television sort of writing that I'd been doing, and I was in development, which is, is like a sort of a, it's like a national, nationality. It's a thing you are, a writer in development. It's on your passport. It's very hard to erase. So it's a great life in a way. I don't complain about being in development. It's sort of, I always felt it's like the life of an 18th century gentleman. You have no actual visible means of industry. You don't, do, you don't seem to appear to do anything. You just have an income, and, you know, you kind of go out to dinner. Because you write scripts, people pay you for them. They say, well, we love it, but we're not going to make it yet. <laughs> Would you like to write another one? Go, well, okay. And then you get the money, and you do it again. And this could go on for years. You can have an entire <laughs> career where nothing you write is ever performed. <laughs> this was my theory. My agent would say, no, there comes a time, darling, when they stop. <laughs> they stop paying. Um, but so far, it hadn't happened. So I was perfectly content to keep going, running up an account at my boot maker. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, living this sort of life of being in development. But, no, it's not quite true. Um, no, I, I'd got to a point where I felt like television was, you know, this kind of, this development wheel had to be stopped, and I had to... to um, and and theatre was what my background was as an actor, and, and I wanted to get back into it. So writing the play was, in a way... I, I was felt inevitable, but I think the fact that I started writing television was the first thing I started to do although my, almost all of my acting career had been in theatre, was a bit like running away from home. It felt a bit like, if I wanted to become a writer, I felt like what I couldn't do, the first thing I, couldn't, I shouldn't do was write a play. Um, I th felt like I had to go and write television. Um, I'm not entirely sure why I felt like that, but I, I just felt, I think partly it's that running away from home thing. I felt like I wanted to do something different to what I had been doing. And partly I think I wanted a quite rigorous, I wanted the commercial imperative to kick me about a bit, really. But it must have been fascinating, then, in a sense, by contrast with all these celluloid projects which mm. were paying you but not yeah. bearing fruit. Yeah. Here you had something yeah. which was going to open on a certain night yeah. in a theatre that seats 900 or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah but, but yes, absolutely. Completely unique. <laughs> a unique experience for me, in fact. Um, and, and, and hugely... Uh, because the thing about development is... Um, 
it doesn't develop you. <laughs> because you don't, I mean, you have to have your work performed in order to find out what's wrong and right about it. Um, there always seems to be a thing with the writer's first play, people feel like, you know, this is, it has to be something particularly urgent, particularly pressing, particularly burning, because it's the first thing they're showing the world. Yeah. So maybe you could talk about that in relation to why The Last of the Housemans is your first play. How important is the world of this play to you? Yeah. And maybe for people who don't, who haven't seen the play, you could just tell us a little bit about what the world of the play is. Yeah, um, I, I don't really know why. Um, I know a lot of it's a boring thing, right, to say when they say stories choose you. But it, it, I, I, do, I, I must say I think it's true. Um, <clears throat> I don't know why. That's the truth. It's not very interesting, but it's the truth. I, I, it just was the first... It, the first idea I had that I knew was a play. Um, I, and I think... Well, it is actually... Whether or not it ends up like this, this is my intention, is that The Last of the Housemans is one of, I think, three plays which are all about my childhood, well, the, the, the place I grew up in, uh, in Dartmouth, in Devon. Um, and the world of that, those experiences, and my particular eye on, 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 those, um, on, on that world. It's a brilliant bit in... Um, I shouldn't start sentences like that, because I can never remember proper nouns. Hope and Glory, um, the movie. The one John Borman. John Borman film, film yeah. where, where, the, where there's a little boy looking through the wrong end of a telescope, and he's looking at his family, so they're far and far away. And it feels a bit like that to me, this, this play, in the sense that um, I'm looking at those... Uh, the, the world that I grew up in and the particular, very particular place that I had in that world, um, <clears throat> which I think bears a lot of the fruit about what, what I write about and what interests me about this country, really. Because my background was... Um, you know, Dartmouth is a very... Un well, it seems to me to be a very unique place. Um, it's, it's, it was a sort of... Well, when I was a child, there was a sort of last bastion of empire. Lots of people had moved there from colonies because of the temperate climate. And like a lot of empire builders, they were all eccentric or crazy or drunk or all three, often all three. And this sort of extraordinary world existed of these, these people. Um, <clears throat> and my mum had come from very, comes from a very working class family um, in London. And she'd moved down there with my dad, who was a bit of a chance, so I didn't stick around for very long. Um, and she kind of ended up being stuck there. And <clears throat> she was a waitress in a grizzly restaurant called the Scarlet Geranium. <laughs> if I named a restaurant the Scarlet Geranium in a play, people would say, how ridiculous. <laughs> but it was called the Scarlet Geranium. And, then, and she was a cleaner, and, was, and that was kind of what she did. She was a highly, brilliantly bright person, and actually grew up with a love of literature, which was given to her by her dad, who was a Thames bargeman, but um, you know, <clears throat> not in any way educated, and from a very working-class background. But she was sort of adopted, and my stepfather was part of another, the other world of Dartmouth, which was um, the, the sort of crazies, the crazy empire builder types. And so from the position of an outsider, I observed that world. Um, <clears throat> and it's a sort of a deadly... These children are a deadly breed. You know, they sit in the drawing room with their hair brushed and parted, and they know the right things to say, and they know which cake knife to pick up. But they're not, in, they're not part of the world. They're watching and then they write plays about it for the National Theatre. <laughs> and serves you right, really. <clears throat> so, so I think that, you know, that's... I, I, I'm, it's not what I'm not doing. I'm not, what I'm not is the literary Becky Sharp. But there is some elements in which I feel that it's, it's, 
that world of Dartmouth and growing up in that world with those people and those things had such a deep effect on me. And for some reason, I felt that these three plays I want to write are the first things that have to come out of me for the theatre. So, so um, The Last of the Housemans is the first of three dark plays about Dartmouth that I, I want to write. The second I'm now writing, which is a National Theatre Commission. And the idea will be that the characters that appear in each play are mentioned in the other plays. So the characters that will be the, the subject of the second play are mentioned in The Last of the Housemans and referred to. And, and is the idea that eventually that can be performed as a triptych? Why not? A la, you know, yeah. August Wilson or Alan Akeborn or whoever. Knock yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you feel, Stephen, when you look at Vicki Mortimer's set here? Does it evoke something from the past? It's incredible. I gave Vicky no... I mean, there's a description of the house in the, in the script which says it's Art Deco, which I wanted very... It was very important that it was Art Deco um, because... Mm -hmm. The play is about, the, really, the, the play is sort of about, one of the things the play is about, is a better way of saying that, is uh, these enormous ideas which impact on, on people, individuals, on, on our own personal lives, like, you know, great crashing waves, destroying or, you know, and also creating extraordinary things and energies. So the, the play is all about how those ideas smash into people. And one of the ideas that smash into people that, people don't, that is a bit more hidden in the play is the 1930s. Um, which is the, the, the past, the dead generation of Hausmans who built this house. Um, so I said it had to be Art Deco. And then I gave Vicky a couple of pictures of Dartmouth where I just gave them, you know, left them in an envelope at stage two. And um, then the first thing I saw was the model. And it was exactly what I wanted, only better, far better. Uh, it even feels like Dartmouth, actually. Um, this kind of... There, there, is, uh, there are a couple of Art Deco houses in Dartmouth in this part of Dartmouth, the, the posh bit... Um, which, well, they're not quite as grand as this, um, but like this, like all Art Deco houses in, when you transplant them from California and, or, or, you know, the south of France and put them in the southwest coast of England, they rot <laughs> swiftly. So, you know, within six months, your Art Deco facade is covered in guano and rust. <laughs> and that, that's what Vicky's done brilliantly. I often wish that people could have a... a get up here and in the audiences before the play began, a bit like Stalin's tomb. They could just, in a single file, walk around the set and back to their seats. Because the detail of what she's created on that set, there are things on there you could only see if you were sat in a chair right next to them. The drawers are full of things. I mean, everything on there, the detail is incredible. I think Vicky's been, it's work of genius, that set. Of course, a lot of plays, like the American play by Augusta Sage County, which was mm. on this stage several years ago, about to be a film with Meryl Streep. You know, plays do become films. Could this become a film? I never thought it was a film. Um, <clears throat> so I don't... I don't mm -hmm. doesn't really... You don't have a screenplay kind of tucked no, away on your computer. Not. No, um, Who knows? I mean, maybe. I'm, I don't know. I don't know about mm. the answer to that. I'm not sure. Seems to me a bit static. But then often, I think that's often the case. You, you write a play and you only see it as a play. Somebody else will come along and say, this is how I'll make it a film. And, and that can, rather yes. like Vicky and the set, you know, opens up ideas that you never knew you had. Because you know? one of the things the play seems to be about is kind of the 60s hangover, for mm. lack of a better phrase. And it's been interesting, as, as you're well aware. There have been other plays in recent years that have addressed that topic. Alexi K. Campbell wrote one. Mike Bartlett wrote one just at the world, yeah. recently at the World Court. Is this just because playwrights are reaching a certain age in their own lives where that is interesting to them because of their families, their parentage, whatever? Yeah. I mean, what, what is this about? I think that's probably the case. Um, I think, 
Yeah, I think it's a generation of playwrights coming of age so that they're writing about their, their parents. So I think that's sort of, that's the case. I think, <clears throat> I mean, I've always felt, I never felt really, right, that the 60s was a huge part of the play. For me, it's more about, it's not quite, that's not really its subject matter, but it's definitely, I think, the thing that people really latch onto. Um, I would say there is a sense, I think, in which writers of, like Mike and myself of our generation are asking the same question that the writers of the 1960s and 1970s were asking about the post-war generation. So it seems to be a pattern that, that playwrights will ask the question, and more than ask the question, it's kind of a, it's a cri de coeur where they say, there was a, rev or, or a great promise, something happened and the world changed for a second, and great promise was offered and it was squandered somehow and I never saw it. And that was exactly what David Hare and Howard Brenton were writing about the whole, the, the world of, of the 45 um, uh, Labour landslide and the possibilities of the end of the Second World War. So many of those plays um, are screams backward of what, you know, of, about what they, they perceive to be the squandering of this incredible promise. And I think playwrights of my generation are asking the same question of the 1960s. I think that's something that interests us because we say, well, how did this happen? How did it happen that this revolution occurred, but by the time I was alive and going to school, greed was good and, uh, you know, Thatcher was omnipresent and the world was absolutely... There is no, there is no trace, appeared to me to be no trace. And I must say, I think it seems to me that that's an important question to ask, what is left of it, uh, of that promise. And because I, I do, I, part of what Nick says, spoiler alert, part of what Nick says in, when he screams at his mother is something I, I mean, I don't really feel it like he does because he's an alcoholic drug addict <laughs> with a dirty mouth, but I, I feel something of what he feels, which is how did it happen that, that, that um, this incredible thing was, was squandered? And, and here, you know, I've grown up in a completely different environment um, and I see nothing. I see no trace of it. I'm glad you mentioned Nick being an alcoholic drug addict with a okay. dirty mouth, because I think we should maybe talk a little <laughs> bit about the characters who are pretty, I, I think across the board, pretty ripe. Yes. They're pretty juicy. You've yeah. got the matriarch, Julie Walters' character, who's extraordinary to look at and to listen to. Her daughter, Libby, Helen McCrory's character, who's full of fury and fire. And then you, you've got the son, Rory Kinnear. Mm. As an actor, former actor yourself, you must be aware when you're writing what it's going to be like for these actors to play these roles yeah. and how playable they are. Yeah. In fact, if anything, I would think what you then need to do is kind of pull it back. Is that sometimes what happens? I think I've always felt very strongly there's nothing worse as an actor than walking down the corridor of the Littleton Theatre and passing somebody who's about to go on to do their nine lines <laughs> and, you know, them going, hi, good, what's the house like? You know, God, I wish I was dead. It's that <laughs> terrible thing that, that playwrights... <laughs> Playwrights of previous, you know, eras, when, you, you know, when a couple of shillings and a jug of mead was payment, didn't mind about writing, you know, plays. But I just, I never wanted to write a play where I felt nobody, there was anyone on stage who felt like they didn't have a good part, because I just think it's boring sitting in your room doing a Sudoku <laughs> for three hours. It's just boring. What's the point? It's expensive and it's a waste of talent. Um, so I, I felt very strongly that I wanted to write. All, I, want, I wanted to feel like every part was a good part to play. That's really important. I think the kind of hugeness of the characters, because I love that, and part of what the play is about, and I think what the future plays will be about, is, that, is about 
you know, Judy, there's a thing Richard Eyre says, you know, this thing about an imp, that playwrights have an imp. Mm. It's an idea that appeals to me. I don't know, I don't know if it, this is the case, but something Richard Eyre says that, is that playwrights have this imp, this unacceptable part of themselves, which they put into their work. So that they, that's the mouthpiece for the things they can't really say. And um, there's something about that idea, I think, that runs through everything I write, really, that is, um, I'm interested in people who are very alive. I like that. Um, and, and I suppose that's partly, again, the Dartmouth thing is that, that, that you know, they're hard drinking. Well, during the previews, when I was so scared and, and, and depressed and suicidal, and I would stand at the long bar every evening watching people, you know, piling in, thinking, oh, God, here comes another hundred <laughs> to judge me. And I'd stand there at the long bar with this terrible face like thunder. And one of the barmen there said, uh, did you write the play? And I said, yeah, how could you tell? Um, and he said, um, oh, well, we, we saw one of the dresses, and as far as we're concerned, it's an, it's an absolute winner. I said, God, that's, thank you. He went, yeah, plays about alcoholics are brilliant for taking. <laughs> said, oh, no, thank you. <clears throat> so you, like, you, you've, you've increased the bar sales. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's true. But if I, I'm ever there in the foyer in the, in the, um, in the interval, they're absolutely jamming that long bar. <laughs> Three gin and tonics, please. Large gin and tonics. They're screaming. Because people see it and they think, oh, I fancy a bit of that. So they're absolutely hulling the drink back, which is great for the second half as well. People are screaming with laughter, crying their eyes out. Um, yeah. What, when you were writing this play, and of course, having been an actor and having worked in the classics and having gone to RADA, and you know, you know the canon as well as anyone, is, is, does that seep into your writing? There were some of the critics who you haven't read did talk about the influence of Chekhov yeah. on this play, and it's pretty obvious. That's not a big spoiler. No. You know, were you thinking, oh yeah, I really like Chekhov. I'm going to fold him into the play, or, or is that really subliminal? No, no, I really did. And there were certain things that, that I really... Um, I deliberately didn't read Apologia or Love, 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 and still haven't, because I just knew that um, that would be a disaster, because they were so, they, I knew they were touching on similar territory. But I read Cherry Orchard before thinking this, you know, the, uh, and I've no, there's no shame in that, I think, you know, finding a play and going, what's a model for what I want to do? And, you know, I think I love Chekhov so much, but also it's something to do with also, it's Dartmouth as well, because those Chekhovian worlds, you know, are very, Dartmouth is, well, certainly when I was growing up, it really was the end of the world, it, you know, it, it took hours on the train, and it's half an hour from Totnes and round, and you have to, or you get the ferry, so I mean, you really are, there are three sisters, you are sitting at your table going, when will we get to Exeter, <laughs> it's just terrible, so there is a sense in which Chekhov was absolutely, when I read Chekhov, I went, I get this, I get this guy, you know, everyone's having a vodka at 11 a.m., I'm thinking, oh, God, this terrible life. <laughs> and, you know, and, and also, that that's funny, and that's very much you know, the world that I, that I grew up in. So I think, so certainly, yes, Chekhov was a huge, huge influence. Um, and one of many, I think, things which just seem to be part of these incredible people that I, that I grew up with. Um, Grey Gardens was another. We were, Yes, which is this extraordinary American film which became a, a Broadway musical about a mother or daughter who were related to the Kennedys who fell on spectacularly hard times. Why, why was that in particular an influence or, or of interest? I think because um, I, uh, it's something about that sense of... It's something which I find very interesting. It's very true of Chekhov and it's very true in Grey Gardens, which is their, their stories about stories, how we live by stories. So we, we all live by stories, the stories we tell ourselves and the stories we tell each other. And um, 
that, that film, what's wonderful about that film, something that really comes out of that, apart from the great stuff in it, and I do recommend it, um, not least of all for the fashion, um, the, the daughter, Edie, um, on one scene has a lavatory pelmet, which she has, you know, one of those things you like, you have around the, the which she's pinned on a thing with a diamante brooch, and, you know, <laughs> nobody mentions it. It's a sort of life, that's very Dartmouth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, but um, there's a, a, what I thought was so interesting about that, that story of the mother and daughter is they talk directly to the Maisel brothers who are making the documentary, next to each other, sitting next to each other, and they tell the same story with absolutely different outcomes, completely different chains of events. As far as they're concerned, this is what happened. No, this is what happened. Neither of them ever contradicts the other, and both accepts that that is the other's version of the truth. And I find that very um, moving in a way. Because neither the mother nor the daughter, they both know the truth is somewhere in the middle, or in fact, nothing, in no way related to what they're saying, which is actually more the case. And I, that's something that is very much in Last of the Housemates, that the people, people are constantly telling each other, this is what happened. And, you know, as is true of families, they don't really, they, sometimes they contradict, often they don't. Have you had a performance where, I don't know, the Women's Institute of Dartmouth or whatever <laughs> have come up to the National to see the plan? You've sort of cowered in the yeah, corner. Yeah, some Dartmovians have, have been. <laughs> um, Judy Hausman is, is a little bit, um, well, in two ways, slightly based on a real character who, who, um, who was a huge part of my childhood, a woman called Judy Luthwaite, who had one eye and three whippets and lived an extraordinary squalor, but not squalor, I mean, wonderful glamour, but, you know, there was chaos everywhere. She, I never, she would get dressed at around 9pm, and um, the door was always open, and when you walked it, opened the front door and going to her house at sort of 10 o'clock at night, she'd say, make, make yourself a drink, you know, so if you were a burglar or, you know, whoever you were. <laughs> uh, and um, so she was slightly, not, not politically, Judy Lufoke wasn't a radical, really. Oh, she was in some way socially, but actually politically she was quite conservative. Um, but as a completely by accident, uh, Julie Walters, um, playing Judy, is absolutely identical to the original Judy Luthwaite. Uh, I didn't say a word to Vicky Mortimer or to Julie. They just, when she came out for the tech, well, I suppose I wrote the Snoopy nightdress. That's a oh, spoiler. I didn't warn you before the spoiler, I'm sorry. Right. When, then there's a nighty. now you know there's a nighty in the play. Um, <laughs> she, so when she comes out in the nighty and with her hair, you know, I, she looks absolutely identical. And some of Judy's family, you know, have seen the play, Judy Luthwaite's family. There was a, a, you know, I believe an audible gasp as she appeared, um, because she really does, does look exactly like her. Um, but um, uh, the, the, for the first time ever, Dartmouth's small cinema will be showing the NT live, because so will, they will see themselves. Will you do a special wave or I don't shout know. out? I, mean, I could end up, I could end my career dangling from a lamppost in Fairfax Bay. <laughs> so I don't know, it's a good idea really, probably not. Um, they've asked me to go down, I bet they have, so they can tar and feather me. <laughs> they might wait, start with people being what they are, they might wait for all three plays and then kill me. Then listen. <laughs> Um, Stephen, I was curious about the title. It's a very, I love the title, but it's very grand and it's kind of apocalyptic. Yeah. The Last of the Housemans. Do you see that title as elegiac or, or apocalyptic or is it just factual? What's, what's your it's feeling It's all those things, really. Um, she is the last. Um, it's sort of that thing of, uh, it's slightly ironic in the sense that, and I think all three of the plays, the Dartmouth plays I want to do are, are 
titled in that way because it's sort of, there's something, there is something elegiac about it. There's nothing really very elegiac about them. You know, they're, they're just a family of mouldering drunks. <laughs> so it's sort of, I'm giving them a grand title when in fact um, it's the opposite really of what they deserve. The, the name Hausman, people have often asked me about that, although it's very, I, I, it was very important. I, I remember when I was trying to think of their names. I find the whole business of characters' names is terribly important. And, you know, writers spend so long thinking about... Mind you, you do that, and then the people go in the foyer and say, I like the one in the green hat. <laughs> so, you know, there's nothing you can, you can do about that. But um, I didn't want the, the family to have a name that sounded Anglo-Saxon, because mm. I didn't want it to sound like this is some, you know, elegy to, to a sort of aristocratic... A dying Britain. Dying Britain. I mean, yeah. that's a load of old balls. Mm. No, I wanted it to sound like... I don't know, I, it, I, I heard it in my head, and I thought, that's, that's their name. And from their name, I suppose I felt that I got their whole history. Uh, um, but I wanted them not to seem like English. You know, they would have been refugees, I would imagine, from... So what's the next play called? Well, I'd better not tell you that until it's uh, okay. up. But it's kind of got a bit of a grand, uh, grandish title. And again, as I say, it's in Dartmouth. And the characters in the second play are in the first a prize of a tube of Smarties to anyone who can spot who they are. I'm afraid we do have to wrap it up. So thank all of you for coming, and thank you, Stephen, okay. for being thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you.